Welcome to the Psych Experience. Hey everyone, welcome back to Psych Experience, the podcast for those who love psychology and psychiatry. Here with Dr. Nadi today to talk about the marriage between psychology and psychiatry. Dr. Nadi, how's it going today, man? Pretty good. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for asking. Yeah, so uh, I know that a lot of people confuse the roles of psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, of course, our listeners don't struggle with that. However, I have a slightly more complicated question for you. Does psychiatry actually need psychology? Uh, very good question. So, so let's, um, does he need, okay, so this, is, you know, I'm incapable of just saying yes or no for this thing. So, so let's, uh, let's go, let's go on a, on, let's take a walk here. Right. So we, we could start with a, we, with a quick historical view of psychiatry. So our diagnostic um, Bible, so to speak, used to be heavily like really heavily influenced by psychology, even like actually specifically psychoanalysis. But then some efforts took place to separate it and make psychiatry work under a purely medical model. For example, speculations over etiology of disorders were completely abandoned and or, or at least to a fair extent abandoned or, you know, um, if we take into account uh, etiology as suggested by psychology and an attempt was made to have a purely descriptive diagnostic model. Like, you know, if you have all the symptoms, then you have this diagnosis and here's your drug. One could claim then, you know, that it was an effort to turn psychiatry into, into a purely medical art to a fair extent. And many good things came out of it. One of them is that psychiatry is a nearly purely evidence-based field, except for, you know, financial biases that seem to be playing roles in um, mm -hmm. medication choices in um, you know sort of um, but this is this is a, a this is a topic we're going to address another time um, okay. but 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 what I mean by that is because we don't know how the brain works or how even the meds work because you know one say oh it's an SSRI all right so how does that translate into an alleged improved in mood mm -hmm. um, so we are left with a body of research um, and results to guide our decisions, you know, and, and, and we saw how um, and we're going to see how that should play into guidelines. Now, in addition to that, psychiatry as a purely medical art also sort of emphasizes some of the philosophical principles of medicine. And we saw in previous episodes how uh, beneficial it is to keep those principles in mind mm -hmm. when prescribing or deciding to prescribe or not, you know, like things like as simple as the damage of the medication cannot be worse than the disorder you're trying to treat. Right. Uh, the other discussion we had was why don't we go with uh, the most efficacious treatment first? And their answer is because we're choosing the one with less results, but also hopefully less side effects. Less side effects yes. And um, but unfortunately, we saw that's not very consistent, even in guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so as I said, you know, unfortunately, those those um, principles are not always floating in the consciousness of prescribers or even uh, writers. But um, yeah, I, I think you skewed a tangent right there. Uh, <laughs> can we go back to psychology? <laughs> See, a, a friend of mine told me I'm incapable of answer quest answering questions directly without first. Laying all my reasons, so I'll give That's my fair best. fair enough. You, you like to tell your stories, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if you consider that there was an effort to turn psychiatry into, into a purely medical art, 
And you also see that medical philosophy is not the simplest of things, but it's far from being one of the most complex things. And by speculating how much of the current state of psychiatry, and I don't mean that in a flattering way. Oh, you're, t you're talking about polypharmacy, um, overprescription of addictive substances, maybe? Uh, side effects, loads, uh, problems with diagnosis, that kind of thing? Stuff, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, gotcha. so just looking at those problems, we concluded in previous episodes, directly or indirectly, that taking medical philosophy more seriously would make a meaningful dent towards improving those problems. But it is hard not to think or to see that the absence of psychology in that framework has also caused a lot of deficit in, in terms of where psychiatry is and where we would... Uh, wish it was so you're basically saying that there's no psychology in psychiatry that, that's a okay that's a difficult statement to make mm. we we have pockets of let's say excellence <clears throat> so in psychiatry um where providers are heavily trained in psychology you know you, you're gonna find these pockets Psycho psychology is indeed part of our training a large part of it with some variation between variation between programs mm -hmm. However, when you consider the relative simplicity of medical philosophy and how much it is absent on everyday practice, then you look to the endless complexity of psychology. What is the likelihood that psychological knowledge permeates everyday work in psychiatry? And, right. and more, when you look to psychiatry as it is, it is hard not to notice the absence of psychological thinking. Mm, like what? So let's start with the SM. How the absence of psychology could be leading to the place we are now. It's funny to say that, right? We're noticing because we're noticing the absence of something, and, and I also like to say that this topic is freaking difficult, and, and being sure of it is a bit too much, and it's, it's it's definitely too much pretension. But you know, let's just exercise and, and think out loud, and hopefully we get a feedback saying, "Oh yeah, I agree," or "No, you forgot to consider this and that." Like happily, ha happily has been happening. Right. So if someone is working with a with a prescription pad in hands. What kind of rationale will be used to put the prescription pad in action? You identify a given number of symptoms in an effort to typify the patient according to types of disorders, mm -hmm. let's say depression. The next step is to identify suffering or functional limitations. Now, those being met, the built-in thought process is, okay, this is a disorder, so let's move to the treatment. The treatment in case being you know, in the absolute majority of cases, medication. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look into this thing for a second. Let's, let's look into suffering for a second. How much suffering is too much suffering? And, and there's more. What is wrong with suffering? Isn't suffering part of life? When I see psychiatrists saying with the same breath that we treat suffering and also suggest mindfulness because it, it's on vogue, you know, it, it, even though it has been on vogue for the past 2,000 years probably, it becomes evident that psychology is no longer built in psychiatry, but a patch put on top of it somewhere, somehow. Gotcha. But uh, is, isn't suffering a bad thing? And isn't also a good thing to relieve suffering? I mean, you would want a pain a, a painkiller mm -hmm. uh, if you were in an ED with an amputation of okay. sorts, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so absolutely. But, but we, 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 it, it, this topic deserves a, a bit of a deeper look. Let's take something called diabetic foot. Mm -hmm. So as, as, as you walk, there's a feedback system that sends the sensation of, of the bottom of your feet to your central nervous system. And as a result of that, any minimal painful stimulus, and by, by minimal I mean it, results in a minimal correction in your walking. 
Mm-hmm. That way, every single step is a bit different from the previous one, so you don't damage your feet. The pressure is no, not always hitting the same spots in your feet. Right. There's a distribution random, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the same if you're sitting for too long. You move as to switch the pressure from part of your buttocks to another part of your buttocks. I always found that word funny. <laughs> now, let's take <laughs> three examples of people who cannot do it. Diabetics have a damage in their peripheral nerve terminations. And... Uh, maybe I should say pathways that prevent that kind of feedback. As a result, their steps have less variation. And if something is hurting the tip of their toes, for example, they don't feel it and end up with an ulcer Mm. and arthrosis. Elderly patients or bedridden patients need to be moved or or like periodically, like every so many minutes, or they develop pressure ulcers because they cannot move by themselves or because they're not quite conscious. The pressure in a given part of their body reduces the blood flow there, and as a result, tissue dies. Usually, you know that's happening. You react to it. That's why we can't sit still for too long, and we keep always kind of a wiggling in no, our. That's, um, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, the third one, and, and this one is this one is a, is a crazy one. I knew this thing before reading about it. Okay. Patients with arthritis that are put on opioids have faster deterioration of their joints that patients with arthritis that are not on opioids. It's the same logic. I knew that before reading about it. I had the thought that they say, if everything makes sense, these people have a faster deterioration. Why? Because if every step is different from the next, right? Mm -hmm. It means that you're distributing your weight slightly differently on your knees, for example. And if you're like all sedated or all messed up because of opioids or anything that tells your body that messes up with this feedback, right you start hurting you start moving in ways that are repetitive and you start hurting yourself okay so you're you're basically saying that suffering can be functional yes yes and observe that also this prevalence of arthritic problems in opioid addicts but this one is biased i didn't find any articles to confirm my impression but i found articles to research to confirm the other one but Mm -hmm. addicts have more arthritic problems and but that's my unsystematic observation so we got to be careful about that so right so yeah so as you're saying suffering has a function uh, would you want not to feel cold mm, i don't think so or hungry w- yeah. what would happen right now let's transpose the concept to emotional suffering just as feeling cold signals that you have to do something to change your environment move right. to a warmer place so to speak don't emotional suffering also tells you that you have to move somewhere else change your environment but if we if we look into the logic built into the dsm we don't treat only acute suffering as you refer to acute amputation pain and need for relief for example right you said oh isn't that like pain mm-hmm. we want relief yeah but we are treating chronic emotional pain stemming from chronic situations that could be changed right. now here's the here's the here's the the trick psychology knows that Mm-hmm. Psychology gives you insight into what crises are better left alone because they may feel much needed change. Psychology tells you that there are some things that are absolute good or values like movement, self-improvement, self-awareness, learning about yourself, go on a journey, organize your life, uh, confront people, engage in conflict. That's, that's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Uh, or exclude people from your life. Oh, that's an easy one. <laughs> yeah. uh, I see, but I see where you're going with this. Like medicating people under that framework, it leads to stagnation. Yes. And, and more, psychology knows that there is no such a thing as a stability. Mm-hmm. Life is change. But people come to a shrink and say, I'm sorry. And as you dig, you find out that the, person, the, the, the patient is actually saying, 
I can't stand where I am. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we go and give something to make the patient stay there, to endure what he's going through instead of embracing the fact that, you know, life changes, we change, everything changes. Now, somewhere there, there's a balance of acceptance of some degree of discomfort and engaging, changing uh, stuff or accepting the need for a change. Mm -hmm. Psychology knows that. Psychiatry okay. doesn't seem to. So the so the uh, psychological thinkers took the time to look into it, right? Uh huh. And and, and, and it doesn't seem to be built in psychiatry anymore. Uh -huh. So there are many other possible examples. So uh, let's say last decade we found that benzodiazepines are bad for trauma and phobias. Mm. Psychology knew that traumas need to be processed. Oh, what does it mean to be processed? I don't care what it means to be processed. It's still talking about it, living, accepting. You name the way you want. You know, I don't care. Living life in a way of healing. But we know now that benzodiazepines prevent you getting over stuff. And, and you know, in like psychology knew that fears needed to be confronted. Mm. Or um, how about inattention due to anxiety and environmental factors in adulthood? versus ADHD. Psychology knows better how to take that into account, knows better how to look uh, into the, the environment, while psychiatry only considers, um, you know, etiology pretty much in trauma-related stuff. Um, or how about ADHD and overprescription of stimulants? Psychology knows better than, that we have emotional needs. Kids have emotional needs and that there is, there's a list of a temporary satiation of those needs so kids can go for walks or have something some sort of play in between attention demanding tasks. Psychology knows that part of children's development in involves testing limits, physical limits, social limits. Psychiatry runs the risk of curbing that process as long as there are complaints about the kid because there's no built-in thought in that regard. Mm, it's quite hard to not think that polypharmacy stems from it. Right. So emotions are absolutely relentless. Feelings are relentless. As long as we are feeling something, there's a good chance that the way psychiatrists design right now will push the pen to write more meds to attempt to suppress the emotions. Now, does that mean we successfully suppress them? If anything, the, the opposite. You know me and you know I have an intimate relationship with the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, which one could claim is a disturbance of the feeling as opposed to a disturbance of the environment or the relationship with one's uh, circumstances, whatever. But guess, guess what? Evidence suggests that less is more. When it comes to medications, we shouldn't be prescribing a lot of stuff to people with borderline personality disorder. But we still see patients taking what uh, a few weeks ago I heard as described as a borderline soup. <laughs> borderline soup? Yeah. I, that yeah. would be a great name for a punk rock band. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. That's a good one. Yeah. I heard that from... a. From a very, very nice resident, uh, I met res recently, uh, I was, um, um, he heard that from his attending. I, 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 and despite laughing, you know, as I said, I, I, I don't take borderline diagnosis lightly, given my, my personal story. Right. Um, so you're essentially saying that psychology gives a better framework. Is that correct? I would say so. Psychology, psychotherapy, which is the, the derived art of psychology, tells us to find the truth. Now, psychology can be psychological research and data and can also be psychological philosophy, right? right? And psychotherapy is based on both things. Lately, psychotherapy has been heavily contaminated by neuropsych research, which it's much needed, but neuropsych research is, doesn't really add anything new to it, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Because when you look to psych, you, this is what happens to psychology. You have an evolution of it, and people start looking to the biology behind things, which is all good and needed. 
But assuming that techniques are changing significantly because of that, instead of just looking to the old theories, the theories that said the same damn thing based on another rationale 100 years ago, mm-hmm. and stick to it because theoretical approach operates as more of an umbrella kind of thing. But I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to address that in another time. As it is designed, uh, back to psychiatry, as it is designed, psychiatry and the SM are invested in... in if someone thinks this is wrong, please email us and, and show me where I'm wrong. But it, it seems yeah, that's that that's the whole point, right? That's the point. <laughs> we're, we're trying the to discussion. Yeah, yeah we're, we're we're trying to make a wave, improve things all together, be, be part of it. So, uh, you know, your your help is much appreciated. But it seems that psychiatry and DSM are invested in suppressing unwanted feelings, unwanted change, as if change could be prevented, as if change is not life itself. If I'm seeing a 27-year-old male that is struggling with anxiety and I found out that he's anxious because he's feeling empty, struggling with a lack of sense of purpose, living with his parents, I may not want to treat that anxiety. Hmm. It may very well be a good thing that will, you know, the anxiety will be a good thing that will push him forward. If a middle-aged woman married to a prick has been depressed and feeling life is purposeless, I really wonder if I should treat it. Psychology knows how to use that as a fuel to help the patient find their next quest, to have some movement, some change. I don't want to practice a stay-put psychiatry. You know, I want patients to have wonderful lives Mm -hmm. full of adventure and passion and meaning. And do you also see a deficit uh, from a diagnostic perspective? Yes. So, well, as I said before, good things came out of observing stuff with the psychological freelances. But also bad things. One example is the diagnosis of histrionic personality disorder or histrionic traits. It it, it departed so much from original descriptions and took a turn towards... um, Well, let's let's look into it. So one of the criteria of histrionic personality disorder is that the patient draws attention to himself or herself by his appearance. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not an eccentric appearance because that would imply schizotypal personality traits, but by attractiveness. Now, seriously... It pretty much means that the, to have that personality disorder, you have to be attractive or good-looking. Now, if you look into the original description, the core of hysteria, mm-hmm. the core of the, uh, the concept that was be, be before histrionic personality disorder, that was hysteria, the core of it is that the patient wants your wanting but not what you have to offer. So, so a classic example will be an attractive girl who keeps a bunch of men interested in her by sending dubious messages, but has no interest in any of them or most of them. How does that translate into clinical work? Wanting your wanting is the root of it, right? So, so it's what's behind it. So the description didn't quite match that. So it's not the attractiveness necessarily. If you're attractive, you can use that. But if you're not, you have to use because it's a trait, mm-hmm. you have to use other tools. So the patient wants a doctor to want to treat her or him, but does not want the improvement or the treatment itself. Now, psychology used to know that. Hmm. Psychology knows that anxiety is paralyzing. That's another example. Um, anxiety can be paralyzing. Right. And, I mean, we it, it's part of our everyday, like, I froze in panic right something so like we know this mechanism right? yeah and we see animals freeze we see people freeze when they're like very anxious mm-hmm. psychiatry didn't even include the paralysis they put muscle tension and restlessness right. but you can have restlessness and you can also have paralysis it's not even part of the diagnostic criteria okay and uh 
uh, talking about the treatment again, how, how, how can you improve it? So the challenge is the complexity and how vast psychology is, you know, um, in, sense, in the sense of be taken as a quest by a provider who, think about it, people, okay, so we have nurse practitioners as, and, and, and some doctors as, as the bulk of our listeners. So think of their schedule. They're always on the go. They have family time. They have CME requirements that for the most part are absolutely useless. So ideally, psychology should be built in DSM and psychiatry in a way that allows a sort of natural progression of the whole knowledge in a single body. That is not available. And it will take a whole collection of brains to evolve in that direction. So I guess for now, what I could say is read psychology. Choose a school of thoughts and a school of thought, and slowly read it, elaborate, discuss with a colleague. The, the 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 beginning may be quite slow and arduous, but psychology is one of those fields where each page you read, you go like, "Boy, how did I get here without knowing that?" No, it's it's quite exciting. Other than that, you can you can find a mentor that is psychologically versed and discuss discuss cases and texts. Um, right now, I'm putting something together with a few colleagues for for some material. Um, I'm I'm in touch with uh, three psychologists, and we're going to try to sort of elaborate a primer um, f of psychology for prescribers, but um, it's going to take a while. Um, but, but that's what I'm, you know, you, you, you got you to be, be more than just, it's worth it for, for the sake of your patients. And um, so, so, you know, and, and if you guys want any references, you know, you, you can email us. I would, we would gladly send answers saying, you know, try this, try that, try this book or, or that kind of stuff. It will be amazing if, if I, we, it's, yeah. doors are open and we're, we're trying to make a, we're, we're trying to be a wave and hoping everybody wants to be part of it. Yeah. So, uh, in a nutshell. Well, I, I, I would say, I would say in a nutshell, I would wish psychology was there. Psychiatry is, is, is now psychiatry is now built without psychology. Right. But the feeling I have is that way of being built is one of the reasons we're seeing everybody taking five or six medications, developing diabetes, always having persisting symptoms and never getting better. And now they also have to take medication for cholesterol. They're also trying to lose weight and they're also moving funny mm -hmm. and, and, and their lives continue to be miserable and nothing's being done about it because... So, so I, I guess is I would wish psychology was still there and heavily, but it doesn't seem to be built in. It seemed to have started there, but then this effort to make a, a purely medical... Um, a purely medical field um, may have played. My impression is he did, but you know I could be wrong. It's a difficult answer. It's a difficult, difficult question to answer. But he may have been one of the factors that brought psychiatry to the to the spot where it is right now. Mm -hmm. And there's all this fallacy about chemical imbalance and the right medication for the right problem. That's all made up. Right. That's a very interesting pers perspective, Doctor Nighty. And uh, I think this was a wrap for today's episode. Uh, just a, uh, a reminder for the folks that aren't listening to us right now. We do have a website with lots of contents and previous episodes for this podcast as well. You can go check them out at nepmi.org. And Dr. Nadi, any last messages for the listeners today? I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. We have been having amazing feedback and uh, we're feeling very excited about uh, uh, you know, improving our show. We're going to have some interesting interviews coming up. 
Um, so stay tuned. All right. Thank you, Dr. Nardi, and see you next week. See you then. This podcast was offered by NEPMI.org.